All right, if you would find your Bibles and stand for the scripture reading. I know you just sat, but you're young and nimble. Some of you, yes. Um, yeah, First Corinthians, 15, sorry, First Kings 15, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 9. First Kings 15, 9. So in the 20th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Asa began to reign as king of Judah. He reigned 41 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Maka, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. He also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land, and he removed all the idols which his father had made. He also re removed Maka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made a horde image as an Asherah. And Asa cut down her horde image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold utensils. I'll pray. God, I thank you so much again for your life and, and the ministry of your spirit, Lord, who always leads us into what is true. And I pray that we would hear your voice, God, and and that it would only be truth that we hear, and that we would respond in faith and obedience, God, out of love for you, because you have first loved us. Thank you, God, for your merciful and gracious work. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, the greatest gift you could have given us, and we do want to walk um, with him in his ways for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we're marching through um, First Kings, we're at now Asa, who is the, um, the first of the eight good kings of Israel. His father was not a good king. He was not thereby recognized as Scripture as someone that we will see in heaven. He did some good things. He even cried out to the Lord and saw God deliver him. But he, does not, he is not represented as a man of faith in the Old Testament. And yet... As God often does in His grace, you can have an unbeliever who produces a godly son. And that is the case here. So this, this man, Abijam, produces Asa, who was king for 41 years, and his heart was wholly devoted to the Lord his God all his days. Pretty amazing. But just to jump ahead to where we're heading with Asa, even though he's the, a great king, God um, used him, and his heart was wholly devoted to the Lord. At the end of his life, he dies mad at God. I said in an earlier sermon, it appears to me, and I'm not alone with this observation, that you could take each of these kings and summarize their lives in one statement that you could put on a gravestone. And I believe you could write on Aza's gravestone, here lies a good man who died mad at God. This probably seems strange, um, but then I'm a strange person. Um, many times when we have people visit his hill for the first time, I want to give them a little bit of the history of Comfort, the town, of uh, the community just up the road. And you all locals here, you probably know that Comfort was settled by German freethinkers, which was just a fancy way of saying atheist. And there were two small communities here in the hill country that were settled by freethinkers. The other one, I've forgotten the name of it. It's no longer in existence. But comfort has continued on. And so they were atheists from the very beginning. And so if you go through the comfort cemetery, and I will often take new people who have never seen his hill before. You know, I show them around the town. I say, let me take you down into comfort. And I'll show them the True to the Union monument that's down there. And that's another thing. It's a national monument that happens to be in comfort. There are very few national monuments outside of Washington, D.C. And it's a monument to some of these free thinkers who, in their contrarian spirit, they said, we're not going to support the Confederacy. We're going to support the Union. And so a whole bunch of them marched down to Mexico where they were going to catch a boat and sail around to the north and join the Union forces. They never made it. Um, the Texans heard what they were doing found them, and killed them all. And there is a union, there is a monument to that. Do you all not know this? There's a monument to that. 
in comfort. It is the True to Union National Monument that's there in comfort. If you go through the graveyard in comfort, one of the things that I point out to people is that there are no crosses. Um, there are on the, on, the, on the newer side of the Comfort Cemetery, you'll find some crosses, but in the old cemetery, old part of it, zero crosses. A lot of graves are covered in seashells. I don't know what that represents. And there are even more graves that have a stone monument behind it that looks like a tree trunk that has been cut off. So the limbs are cut off, the tree is cut off, and that is a monument to an, called the Order of the Woodsman. And so that was kind of a secretive organization that these old German atheists were involved in. And essentially, that was their religion. Now, I say all that because you can walk through that cemetery and wonder, how did these people die? Well, most of them died without Jesus. And I would imagine many of them died angry at God, even though they said they're atheists. The core probably was more that they were just mad at God for one reason or another. But it's not just unbelievers that are angry at God. Many times, I think, Christians are guilty of the same. And there are Christians who go to their grave mad at God. Asa was one such man. A man who had faith in God, loved God, was wholly devoted to God all the days of his life, and he died mad at God. We'll see why. Before we get to that, the first part here of 1 Kings 15, 1 Kings 15, yes, and also 2 Chronicles 14 to 16, tells us how Asa was determined that he was going to set things right in Israel. And so he was cleaning up everything. And we're told that he did what was right and good in the sight of God. He removed idols. He removed male prostitutes. He tore down high places. He tore down sacred pillars. And even the queen mother he removed. Now there's a bit of a textual thing here with kings because it says it was his mother. When in fact it was not his mother. It was his dad's mother. This was his grandmother. Um, and that comes out clear in 2 Chronicles. There's no word in the Hebrew for grandfather, great-grandfather, grandmother, great-grandmother. And so each person is just called mother or father. And so nonetheless, she had a privileged position of being the queen mother. But she was not a good person. She was an idolatrous. She was an evil person. And he didn't hesitate to say, you're going as well. Which is a pretty big deal. How many Christians do you know that don't take stands against their own family? You know, we'll preach against the world till, you know, we're blue in the face, but we won't say anything to our own families. And this is a man who says, she may be blood, but she's wrong. And he removes her from her position. Couldn't have been easy to do that. And so this was all very good, what he was doing. And then there was a problem. And for this, you have to go over to Second Chronicles. So hold your finger here in First um, Kings but go over to 2 Chronicles in chapter 14. 2 Chronicles 14. So God has, has now, in response to Asa's devotion, He has blessed him. He's given him rest on every side. He's prospered him in terms of the army. It says in verse 8 that Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah. And then there are another 280,000 men from Benjamin. And then... With everything going so well, verse 9, a great crisis. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came to Mirajah. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephatha at Mirajah. Now, million-man army. This will be the largest force that ever comes against Israel in its entire history. There were a lot of significant forces. Babylonians came, Assyrians came, but never was there a million-man army. This is the biggest force that ever comes against them. They're outnumbered two to one. So what do you do? You panic. You say, ah, God, right? It's the only biblical thing to do. And that's what he did, verse 11. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, 
There is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. What a tremendous prayer. Now, do not make this a formula. Do not think that it's the prayer, the formula of the prayer that God was pleased with. You know, a few years ago, there was that prayer of of Jabez. Unbelievable. You know, the last thing that prayer should be is a formula. That is no longer prayer. Prayer is an intimate conversation with God where you're simply expressing in words what is already true of your heart. God knows your heart, so you're not going to shock him by saying what's on your heart. And, but what we do find is that three of the good kings, of the eight good kings, three of them are in similar situations where they're being invaded by a tremendous fighting force that they are not adequate for, and all three of them pray very much the same prayer. It's not identical, it's not a formula, but there's one element that is common to all three prayers, and that's the last thing he says. He says, let not man prevail against you. This isn't about us. This isn't about whether we're going to die or not. Now, that's obviously very much on our minds here. We could die. But the ultimate thing here is not whether we live or die. It's whether you be honored or dishonored. This is about you, God. These people believe that in defeating us, they're defeating you. It's about your name. And it always is. That has never changed. The main reason that God hears us and answers our prayers when we cry out to him in the crises of life is not because he loves us and concerns for us. But he loves us and is concerned for us. But that is not the main thing. That may be the main thing that motivates me. But that's the problem. We should not have as our main motivation that I could lose everything. My life, my family, everything could be lost. That that was not his main motivation, nor should it be ours. It's the name of God. We are the people of God. And when God doesn't come to the aid of his people, it says something about God. And he understood this. And that's what is motivating more than anything else. We trust in you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. Let not man prevail against you. And God's going, exactly. And I am more than willing and more than able to defend my name. So many times we we just miss seeing God do this because we make it about us. And God wants us to see it's about him. And there's such rest, even in the midst of the crisis, and we're crying out to him, but there's still rest. And many able to say, God, it's not about me defending myself. It's about you defending your name. We still go into the battle. We still have to trust God. The battle is still very much real. But we understand it's not about winning and losing. It's about God defending his own name. And he will. And he's still in the business of doing that today. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. And the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him, they pursued them as far as Gerar. And they were just utterly destroyed them. Verse 14, and they destroyed all the cities that were there. And, 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 which, and then they despoiled all of them. So it was just a great victory. So chapter 15, now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now again, we're not talking about that God forsakes in the sense of he breaks covenant with his people. He doesn't. We're talking about just in the circumstances of life and walking with God and knowing God. It is true that if we seek him, 
He will let us find him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James says. Jesus says, come to me all that are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. And so there's this consistent invitation throughout scripture to come to God and know him as your help and your strength and your savior and God will come to you. And so Azariah, the prophet, is giving this message and it's a message of encouragement. It's a message of affirmation and Asa and the people, they hear it and they rejoice in it. Verse eight. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy, which Azariah, the son of Obed, the prophet spoke, he took courage and he just continued on his on his renovation and, and renewal of the culture. He took courage and he removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. And then he restored the altar of the Lord, which is in front of the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all of Judah and Benjamin and all those from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon who had decided with him for many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. And they assembled them all together at Jerusalem in the, in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. And they sacrificed to the Lord. And then verse 12, and they entered into the covenant to seek the Lord with all their, with, with uh, the covenant to seek the Lord of their God, of their fathers, with all their heart and soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. They are serious about this. They said, we will seek God. And we will kill you if you don't. <laughs> now, we don't want to see our governments do that. But you can appreciate the heart of the king and the people here. They are, they are just saying, it is all, we are God's people, 100% His. We are going to respond to Him and love Him, and that will be law of the land. Now you, we know we can't dictate love. We can't command love. But we can appreciate the heart here. Verse 15, And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart, and it sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Verse 17, and it says, The high places were not all removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was blameless all his days. Remember, this is a man who didn't even have the right example from his father of how to walk with the Lord. No excuse don't blame your parents if your parents didn't give you the right example. This man is sold out for the Lord. Holy, devoted, and blameless all his days. Well, how do you get to that point of being mad at God? Chapter 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah, and he fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. So this is not complicated. And we see that, that every nation from the beginning of time has recognized that there are borders. And you have the right to tell your people if they can leave or not except the border in the southern part of the United States. <laughs> but this is no new thing. Every nation, every kingdom has said, these are our borders. And folks, you can only come in with permission. And there are times when nations say, and you can only leave with permission. So this is why we have to have passports, why we have to have visas, why we have treaty agreements with other nations. It's nothing new. It's been going on as long as there have been nations. And so Basha sees that he's having lots of people that are leaving his country and going down into Judah. And he doesn't want it because they're taking their money. They're taking their wealth, all of, all of their sheep, everything they're taking with them. So he says, got to stop it. So he just begins to fortify his southern border, which is the northern border for Judah. And Asa doesn't like it. He likes all these people coming with their wealth. And so he goes, what am I going to do? Now, this is not a crisis. This is not a million-man army. Well, of course you cry out to God when there's a crisis. But when there's a smaller problem that is manageable, 
Well, then just manage it, right? I mean, every good boss will say, you don't have to ask me about everything. Take some initiative. And if you, you know, just do what you think you ought to do. Well, that may work with your boss. It doesn't work with God. God wants to be Lord of every decision we make. He truly does. It's to be His life. And we are not to lean on our own understanding. And so what does Asa do? He handles it himself. Verse 2. Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, to the north of Israel. And he said, Let there be a treaty between me and you, and as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold to break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will, will, will withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to him and said, I can do that. And so he takes the money, breaks his treaty, and now Basha, king of Israel, has to fight against the king of Syria. So he can't be fortifying his southern border, so he has to leave that alone, turn his attention to the north. And while his attention is on the north with the Syrians, here comes Asa, and he tears down all the fortifications. It works. So how could God be upset with that? He didn't have to bother God. God's busy. He's got other things to do. And he handled it on his own, and it all worked out the way it's supposed to work out. Verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, which is a prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria, and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubin an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. And I love this verse. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. And here comes the anger. Asa was angry. Doesn't say with God, but that's the problem. Angry with the seer. And he put him in prison. And he was enraged at him for this. And Asa also oppressed some of the people at the same time. Might as well go out and kick the dog while I'm at it. And now the acts of Asa from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah of Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, he became, how long did he reign? 41 years. 39th year, he became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Why not seek the Lord? Because he's mad at God. So Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. God comes and rebukes him. Didn't like it. God says, Asa, I'm constantly searching the earth, looking for the heart that is inclined toward me, that I might strongly support that person. I would have supported you. You didn't have to give away all this money. You didn't have to bribe some guy. Just had to turn to me. My mom used to say, she would just, she would just, she said, she said, I'd pray about everything. I even asked Jesus about where to park at H-E-B. <laughs> Come on, do you think Jesus really cares? Well, sure he cares. He cares about the birds, where they fly, where they fall. He cares about feeding the sparrows. Surely he cares about where I park at H-E-B. We used to have this, this debate when I was in seminary. It was unfortunate, maybe, but not all unprofitable. And I've maybe told this story, but it was during that time when Gary Friesen had just written a book about knowing God's will, discerning God's will. Very, very popular book. Won the gold medallion that year for Christian books. And um, Friesen had been a, a seminary student at Dallas Theological Seminary, where I was, and so... This, the faculty took a real interest in the book. 
And so every year, um, the week they have a faculty week, the week before school starts, and they would go on a retreat someplace, and they, as a, in part of that week, they would, would discuss a book that they would all read together. And that year they, wrote, they read Gary Friesen's book on Finding God's Will. The basic premise of Friesen's book is that God just has, a, has moral parameters for you to operate within. And as long as what you are doing is not sin, you can do whatever you want. Just make up your mind. God doesn't care. So he doesn't really care who you marry. He just cares, cares that you marry a Christian. He doesn't care what seminary you go to as long as you go to a good seminary. And so he has this just moral parameters. You operate within the moral parameters. Everything's good. And it, it took the Christian world by storm. And so they read this book, the Dallas Seminary Faculty, and then they decided, why don't we have just a, a friendly game of volleyball and we'll have the pro-Friesen team and the anti-Friesen team. And so as seminary students, when I heard about this in one of my classes, we're all going, well, who won? And like that determines anything. You know, I mean, we're going, who won? And, and so the prof said, and he was a young prof, he says, well, the, the pro-Friesen professors won. And most of the class is going, yay. But then he said this, but I have to acknowledge that the anti-Friesen profs were all the old men. And I thought, doesn't that say a lot? These old guys who've been walking with Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years are going, God cares more than just the moral parameters. He cares about every decision I make. It was the young guys who are saying, ah, just do whatever you want as long as it's not a bad thing. They were the Azus. I'll never forget Dwight Pentecost, one of those old guys, said to us in seminary on this same subject. I love it when truth is presented simply. He says, it just seems to me if God is concerned with working all things together for good, then God must be concerned with all things. That's as simple as it gets. If God is concerned with working all things together for good, then it only makes sense that God is concerned with all things. And that's all God's trying to say to Asa. Asa, I'm not just a God to have in your back pocket for when big problems come and you pull me out like your trump card. I want to be your God, to be your all in all because I am all in all. I want to be your very life because I am life. And in any area that you step away into your own resources, independent of me, you are stepping into death because I am life. God wants to be trusted and depended upon in all situations, big and small. There is absolutely no place in a walk with God for leaning on our own understanding. Good intentions, clever actions, successful plans are never okay. They are substitutes for dependence upon God. And in his response, anger. Anger. In God's response, disease in his feet. Tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Feet, those ten little toes. We never think of them. Well, women do. You like painting them up and getting pedicures and stuff. As guys, we never think of them. I don't care. I might trim them, you know, once a month or something, maybe a year, once a year. But when they hurt, all those little things don't feel so little anymore, do they? I, see, I, I don't think this is by mistake. The one part of our body we probably, at least as men, think the least about is our toes, our feet. The little things. And God says, you want to be angry about this, like the little things don't matter? Well, then let's just give you a disease in the part of your feet that you never think about, and you would say if it's still a small thing or not. 
Ever had an ingrown toenail? Oh, man, I used to get them all the time. I remember one time, and I would always doctor them myself, and um, I wasn't very good at doctoring them. And one time, my, my big toe got so infected, it just looked like it had a big cherry on the end of my big toe, and, and, and the red streaks were going all the way up my leg. They were as going up my ankle and into my calf. And I walked into a room, and it was at night, and I didn't see the threshold, and I stubbed my toe, on the, and it just exploded in blood. And so this was during summer camp, and the camp nurse was, looked at it, and she goes, this is what? She goes, emergency room. And so she drove me to the emergency room. The emergency doctor had never dealt with an ingrown toenail before. And so he started shooting it up with, with Novocaine, gave me three shots. It kept poking it. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? I'm just, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> he didn't know you're supposed to tie the toe off so that the, so that the deadening stays in the toe. And so my toe wasn't tied off. And, he, and, I, and I could still feel And he just said to the camp nurse and to the emergency room nurse, hold him down. And so they, now this is never, you never want to hear a doctor say, hold him down. And so hold him down. And, and he got his scalpel out and he ripped it all the way up to the bed and then put his forceps under there and ripped it out. And I just, man, I'm, and I, it's a wonder I'm alive today. And, uh, such a little thing. And he pulled that thing out. It's just a little bit of toenail. It's caused such enormous pain. It came back, the ingrown toenail, didn't work. I went to a podiatrist the next time, a real doctor. And... So I read this about Aza, and I go, I understand. Being mad at God is never a good idea. And little things to us are just as important as the big things to God. They really are. They're, we should take comfort in that, should we not? There is nothing that happens in our life that God is not concerned about. And that doesn't mean I, sh I, I, I should get out on my knees and, and seek God before making any decision. But it means that I can walk through life in that what, what Paul talks about, uninterrupted prayer, a disposition of prayer, just going, God, thank you. Making the decisions that you make and just in that disposition of dependence upon God, not necessarily having to consciously pray, do I put this blue shirt on? Do I put the white shirt on? Do I put the... It doesn't, no. But your life is a disposition of prayer. And it is amazing when God chooses to do so, how God can just show you how those little inconsequential decisions can have an eternity's impact on somebody at some time. Just the, just the most common things. Where we park that car. Who we happen to talk to when we get out of the car. Where we happen to, to sit. Whatever. It just, it just, and you see, God orchestrated this. He is a God who is concerned with every aspect of our lives. Why do we get mad at God? We don't even call it mad at God. We just say, I'm mad at God's people. Because they're jerks sometimes. And this seer was just being a jerk. We are mad because a child dies. Huge loss. Anger is a very normal reaction. We're mad at God because we know, if you know your Bible at all, he gives the ability to conceive. And yet there's lots and lots of women who do not have the ability to conceive. You enter marriage happy and full of hope. And sometimes before you know it, you can't even remember that day that was filled with so much happiness. And marriages end in divorce. And why, God? Long to get married. And yet no one seems to take any interest in us. You're mad at God over singleness. You trust God. Make the best decisions you can with your money and only have ruin to show for it. People that you've loved. Christian people. 
that betray you, hurt you, treat you unjustly. And anger can start to form in our hearts. And we would often not say it's against God. But if you could just peel back that onion, it's usually not very far below the surface. As Christians, we know if God is concerned with every single thing that happens, then everything that happens, God permitted it to happen. And he could have avoided it. He could have kept me from going through these things. When I was in junior high, my, my parents knew that I was struggling, but they didn't know how much. And I've shared this story even with, the, with our students at His Hill recently. Being a Christian, living in a Christian home, I knew that it wasn't just by chance that I was little with kinky hair and glasses and acne. And when I looked at my older brother who was tall, dark, and handsome, younger brothers that were handsome, and I looked at myself in the mirror at 13, 14 years old, I'm going, God could have done it better. All I have to do is look around the family. He could have done it better. And I remember locking myself in the bathroom and hitting myself in the face because I hated what I was looking at. But my anger was toward God. It was toward God. And I remember my godly mom saying all the time, give thanks, Charlie. Say thank you, God. Thank you for making me little. Thank you for even those bad boys at school. Are you kidding me? And that's when I really see. So when you're pressed to give thanks to God, that's when the anger is exposed. It's like the scripture says, don't go to bed on your anger. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Lest you give the devil an opportunity. Patsy and I, we've had our habit all of our lives. It's a good habit to have started. To pray before we go to sleep. We hold hands. And we pray. And if I'm angry, really hard to do. And you got to get it right. You got to talk about it. But prayer really will expose if the anger is there. Being encouraged, even commanded to give thanks in all things will expose if the anger is there. And trust me, God wants us to call it what it is. We're mad at Him. You can have a heart that is wholly devoted to the Lord all the days of your life and be angry at God. That's what it says about Asa. His heart was wholly devoted to the Lord all the days of his life. And yet he died mad at God. It is the ultimate folly to be mad at God. Maybe the only thing dumber is to be mad at your car when it breaks down. (laughs) You ever seen that? People stand on the side of the road. (laughs) Do you think that car understands? Kicking their car, beating their car. Just one level up from that kind of insanity is being mad at God. We can't win. (laughs) What good is it doing? Well, I'm punishing God. I don't think so. But what it does do, it causes us to break fellowship with God. How can two people walk together unless they be in agreement, Scripture says. And to walk with God, you have to walk in the light as He is in the light. Now, I'm not saying the emotion of anger is sin. But to be mad at God, yes, that is sin. God is good. 
And to be mad at God is to say that what God has permitted is wrong. I am making an accusation against God. I am breaking fellowship with Him. And there is never any profit with that. The Bible says we are not to fellowship with those who are given to anger lest we learn their ways. The Bible says that the root of bitterness infects others. There is no good that comes from being mad at God. I think, it's just my personal observation from my own life especially, that there is a direct correlation between anger and pride. Have you noticed humble people are not typically angry people? And I have so many men in my life who are humble people whose lives are characterized by peace, not anger. I so appreciate them. That's not to say they don't have the capacity to get angry. We all do. But I so appreciate the many men in my life especially who I know they have the capacity to be angry. But anger does not characterize their lives. Peace does. Joy does. They are not men who are angry at God. They are humble men. Anger at God is unnecessary and indefensible. Think about Joseph. Boy, if there was ever a man who had any right, every right to be angry at God. Yet he wasn't. He was able to say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But what happened was evil. He was sold into slavery. And then he was put into a prison for something he had not done. And all of it came back to his brother's anger. But he didn't respond with anger. And never responded, as far as we can tell, with anger toward God. And I'm not, I don't for a minute think that Joseph didn't have to really work these things out and perhaps even wrestle with God over these things. But he came through it. And he said, God meant it for good. Is there anything in your life that you are not yet able to say, God meant it for good? Because he always means it for good. He is a good God. And maybe we're not there yet and maybe we have to do what my mom did with me. Thank him anyway. You can't yet see how God meant this for good. But thank him in faith. It took me quite a few years. My first summer, 19 years old, as a camp counselor. And all of a sudden, I'm the most popular counselor. I'm going, I've never been popular in my life. I don't know what this is like. And I'm still not quite sure why it happened, but it just seemed that these, these little boys felt safe with me. They felt like they didn't have to measure up or perform with me. And I think it was because I had been hurt so badly that there was... And I, I, I was, by God's working in me through that hurt and turning to him in it, he gave me an understanding of hurting people, at least at that time. And, and I, I, I recognized that these little kids who maybe are undersized or maybe have got too much acne or whatever it is, I'm going, I've been there. And I, for that, that summer, as I saw what God had done, had I not gone through those years 
I would not have been able to relate to those kids and love those kids and comfort those kids. Paul speaks about this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, that the God of all comfort wants to comfort you in your afflictions that you might comfort others. And from my heart that summer, not just as a matter of choice, but as a matter of heart, I could say, thank you, God, for what you allowed to come into my life. Now I see what it was for. God meant it for good. He always does. We know Job did not suffer because of his sin. But people have observed, they've made the comment on Job, but he sinned because of his suffering. One place Job says, God has made me his target. Another place Job says, if I could have my day in court with God, I would win. Sounds like anger a little bit to me. He's made me his target. If I had my day in court, I would win. Job's not thinking correctly. Job is angry. And God shows up. He says, Job, I've got a few questions for you to answer. <laughs> Seventy of them. Do you know this? Do you know this? How about this? This one? Do you know this? Any of them? Job's going, <laughs> zero. <laughs> I flunked that test. And God says, my point is, you're not God. You don't know what I'm up to. There's a much bigger picture here than you'll ever see. You will never have all the information. And all of life will always be, are you going to trust me? Are you going to thank me? Or are you going to die mad at me? And God says, pray for your friends, Job. They're not your problem. And Job did not die angry at God. I think that anger at God is predicated on at least three lies. One, God is not good. That is a lie. Two, God is unjust, at least with me, and that is a lie. And the third, I don't deserve this, and that is a lie. I deserve hell. I deserve the lake of fire. And yes, there are injustices that happen in life, but the truth is, I will never get what I deserve because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. What I am going to get one day, as Paul says in Romans 5, is the glory of God. And I can exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That tells me I will never get what I deserve. And it is a lie to go through life mad at God saying, I don't deserve this. Yes, there are injustices, but the truth is, I deserve eternal damnation, and I will not get what I deserve, simply because I've placed my faith in Christ for salvation. One final thought. This was a man whose heart was wholly devoted to the Lord his God. This was a man who in the disease of his feet refused to go to God but only went to the doctors. It's not a problem with going to the doctors. The point is he refused to go to God. It occurs to me that the people that we love the most, when, they, when we feel that they have hurt us, disappointed us, perhaps even just simply rebuked us when we didn't think we deserved it. The people we love the most are the people we will be most angry with. And that's why a Christian who loves God can die 
angry with God. That anger is not the absence of love. That anger may in fact be because we love him so much. But it is still wed to a lie. I don't deserve it. God is unjust. God's not being good. But I love God. And that's what makes it so hard. Asa loved God, was wholly devoted to God. So don't for a minute think that because you love God, you're one of those rare Christians who is not guilty of being angry at God. It tends to go hand in hand. The people we love the most are the ones we will get the most angry with. Thank God, not just for his saving grace. He is a long-suffering God. He knows our hearts. He's not put off. And he would have us just to come to him and say, God, forgive me. I've wasted so much time being angry, so much time just refusing to bow before you and say thank you. God, you're not my problem. You're the only joy, the only blessing, the only good that I have is you. And come back to him. Confess your sin. And allow the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And enter back into fellowship with the one who loves you more than anyone else ever will. I'll pray. Lord, this is a message that you know it's for me. It's so much of my life, God, I have struggled with being thankful. And truth be told, Lord, with being angry with you and with what you've permitted to come into my life. And God, I again acknowledge it as sin. And I thank you, God, for the blood of Christ which truly cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, loving Father, that you love us, that you want us, and that whatever comes into our life, as evil as it may be, we can always say, you meant it for good. And there is nothing in this life that you cannot work together for good. We know ultimately, Lord, that is just simply to be brought into greater conformity to Jesus, the one who yielded to you completely, who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. May we too humble ourselves and receive from your hand whatever the cup is that you would have us to drink from. In Jesus' name, amen.